Today on the lab report, we're going to talk stress. You know you got it. Yep. We all should, got it. You got it. Who? I got it. Me? We all got it. Yeah. It's stressful out there. I'm stressed out thinking about it. The world of medicine can be challenging. Clinicians and patients are always looking for more options, more effective treatments, and in the end, more answers. Functional and integrative medicine focuses on addressing root causes of disease. Here at Genova Diagnostics, we've watched this field evolve and grow for over 35 years. We've not only adapted, we've led. Join us as we talk about functional medicine, laboratory testing, and optimizing health. Welcome to the Lab Report. Did you fix my microphone stand? No, I don't. I it was like squeaking. No, I don't. I didn't fix it. I'm, <laughs> I'm not that handy. Hello. Hi, Michael Chapman. How's it going, Patty Devers? It's going real well. Welcome to the Lab Report. Welcome, everyone, to the Lab Report. This is a podcast that is all things functional medicine, specialty lab testing, and integrative therapeutics. Right. And, and it, we're here on behalf of Genova Diagnostics. We happen to work there. Yes. This show is brought to you by Genova Diagnostics. Mm-hmm. And... We are really thankful for this particular platform. If you know, you're, if you're uh, listening go, no, to this for the first time, go ahead, Patty. If you're listening to this for the first time, you should go to iTunes or Spotify and subscribe. Yes, do those things. Rate, review. That'll help out our show. It will. Yeah, and we like to connect. We like to know what's going on out there. Yep. If you like to connect with people too, you should feel free to go ahead and email us podcast at gdx.net that is the email address that you can connect with us send us a little bit of feedback mm-hmm. you can give us the question if you have a question for us you guys have a lot of great questions they when really we do call up on clinical consults mm-hmm. and that's provided a lot of our questions of the day so uh yeah connect with us that would be excellent we look forward to hearing from you but if people stop sending in questions does that mean the question of the day goes away and thereby the jingle well I no. mean, we don't want that to happen. Oh. So let's not even invite that as okay, a possibility because it. that would just be tragic. That's the word I would use there. <laughs> tragic. Well, what about today, Michael? Chappers, what are we talking about today? Good question, Oliver. Thanks, Oliver. You know what we're going to talk about today? We're going to talk about stress. This is a very timely topic. I'm glad. Yeah. It's important mm-hmm. because there's a lot of stuff going on in the world. Yeah. You might have noticed. <laughs> and... Yeah. That stuff that's going on in the world, I think, is really having an impact on how much stress we're all feeling and how much stress we're all under. I think it's a a nice time to talk about this stress and hopefully normalize it a little bit, understand the physiology of stress, Mm -hmm. and then talk about maybe some things that we can do to help manage it. But there's different kinds of stress, right, Michael? Yeah, there's, yeah, there are. Let's start with psychological stress. Yeah. So I think psychological stress is interesting. We we're pretty familiar with the concept, right? We're thinking about mm-hmm. long lines. We're thinking about traffic. We're thinking about jobs and deadlines and kids and all mm-hmm. those things mm-hmm. where our hands start going clammy <laughs> and sweaty <laughs> and right. just that concept of stress. Sure. But, you know, I also like to think about stress from the concept of the, the fact that stress is something that is determined in the brain. Mm-hmm. And we, we, essentially secrete the stress hormones and we we understand stress because it's it has to do with how we're perceiving our environment right mm. we look around and we determine what's normal and what's abnormal and we we match up what we're seeing what we're thinking with our expectations and when there's something that's misaligned between what we're thinking seeing or feeling because thinking actually is almost the same as seeing 
and and hearing at, you're you're reprocessing it in the same way if that is misaligned with what you expect that's when you generate stress so effectively stress comes from this sensation of things should be different than the way they are right now so you're talking about perception how that's people right. perceive their environment yeah yeah, exactly. So there's a there's a perception that's different from what your expectation is, mm-hmm. and that's where stress comes from. And so, you know, that's I think that's just a really fascinating topic it because is. it can take us into a, a whole different realm of mind body medicine that we're probably mm. not going to spend a lot of time on today because that would be a whole other topic or conversation, and maybe we should it have should somebody be. on to yeah. to discuss that. Mm-hmm. But you know, thinking from the top down and and starting at the top of stress and the concept of stress, you can't remove this idea of perception and interpretation of our environment because it all starts there. Right. But besides all of that, besides psychological stress, there's also physical and physiologic stressors, right? So things like chronic pain or chronic disease, toxic exposures, you know, underlying metabolic syndrome and obesity. Some of these things are actual physiologic and physical stressors that people don't think about. Like a chronic pain syndrome it's a chronic release of cortisol. It's a chronic stressor. Right. So, and, and you just said it. I think that leads into our next topic point, which is what does stress do first and foremost? And what do we think of physiologically when the body is under stress, whether that's physical or psychologic in origin? Yeah. And I think that's interesting because regardless of the etiology, the stress response is the same. Okay. So then describe the stress response. What is the stress response? Uh, That's a great question. And so you think, okay, if there's a perceived or an actual stressor, physical stressor, there's something called the HPA axis, which gets activated, the hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis. And so your hypothalamus up in your brain secretes corticotropin releasing hormone, which then further stimulates the pituitary gland and then further down to the adrenal gland to release cortisol, which is the hormone we all know about when we think about stress. Right. And the adrenal gland releasing cortisol. So is that why we call it adrenal fatigue? Or is mm-hmm. that why that, that term adrenal fatigue is out there because cortisol is released from the adrenal gland? It is. And in my mind, and I think some of the, the paradigm is being shifted around that term adrenal fatigue, because if you think about it, if there's a problem in that HPA axis, we're talking about adrenal fatigue. That's just down at the adrenals when in fact there could be a problem up with the hypothalamus secreting CRH. So right. I think the new term that's being used is more HPA axis dysfunction. Yeah. And and what's more, it doesn't really seem to be the case that the adrenal gland gets tired. It doesn't stop secreting cortisol. Right. What likely is occurring is some sort of negative feedback based on the overproduction of cortisol from the HPA axis dysfunction. Right. The signaling. Um, it's a signaling problem in right, essence, right? Right. And so we talk about, when we're talking about addressing HPA axis dysfunction, what we want to do is resensitize mm. the HPA axis, kind of in a similar way that we talk about insulin resistance and resensitization right. to insulin. So it's a very, very similar concept from a physiologic standpoint. So why do we care? Why do we care about HPA axis dysfunction, Michael? Like what are, what are the systemic or physiologic results of HPA axis dysfunction? Well, I think one of the biggest problems with HPA axis dysfunction is the fact that there is prolonged levels of elevated cortisol, mm-hmm. something called hypercortisolemia. Or hypercortisolism. Correct. Mm-hmm. Interchangeable. <laughs> so that is, that's a problem because cortisol at high levels, cortisol has a lot of physiologic functions. It does. And you, you, it's a hormone and mm-hmm. it, it has 
functions for particular reasons, right? It helps to stabilize our blood sugar. It helps to make sure that there's fuel sources for our muscles and muscle contraction. It, it does a lot of different things to help hormesis hmm. or homeostasis. But then what if things get out of whack and there's a dysfunction? That's the problem. The right. problem is that when there's too much cortisol for too long, because you don't want these functions to be going on indefinitely. And that's really the issue with this overall stress and high levels of stress and chronic stress is that you at least a chronic elevations in cortisol. What does cortisol do? Like, why is it bad over right. time? Right, because essentially what cortisol does is, A, it redirects, it's catabolic. It's a catabolic hormone. Mm -hmm. So it breaks down muscle, it breaks down bone for the purpose of supplying the needed amino acids and, and sugars for maintaining our, our system. So it's kind of like, you know, if you're running from a tiger, then your body is primarily focused on making sure you keep running. Right. Mm, so it's going right. to do all the things. Sugar, to start, energy, right, fuel, muscle. To make sure that that is continued. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of the long term. Now, a lot of that function is done by the sympathetic nervous system. So our, our extremely catabolic hormones are epinephrine and norepinephrine. But cortisol is more of a long term stress hormone and can supply the those particular functions for long periods of time. And so what happens is it breaks down bone. So it, it stimulates osteoclast or at least reduces osteoblast mm, activity, right. mm -hmm. which can break down bone or prevent bone formation. It can break down muscle. It then stores a lot of excess energy in the form of weight gain, especially around the waist. Because it's a glucocorticoid. Exactly. Right. And it suppresses our immune system because it's not exactly the right time to be fighting a particular infection when you're, you know, dealing with high levels of stress. So it does suppress your overall immune function, which is critically important right now with everything that's going on to, to make sure that we're addressing this for the purposes of strengthening our immune systems. I agree. It also can prevent the conversion of T4 to T3 peripherally, so it causes thyroid dysfunction as well long-term. Right. But then there's also some long-term sequelae of corticotropin-releasing hormone, right? Mm -hmm. Because over time, if that signal is, is continually being stimulated, then that CRH... Yeah, that CRH actually can do specific things too. It directly inhibits growth hormone, thyroid tropin-releasing hormone, and some of the sex hormones. So, you know, the stress response long-term can suppress your reproductive growth and your thyroid functions. Right, Lots which is why... Yeah, exactly which is why we think about cortisol and we think about the HPA axis as kind of being fundamental and foundational when you're talking about trying to mitigate people's overall hormone system because cortisol can disrupt thyroid function and it can disrupt sex hormone regulation. So that's, that's all critically important. In a prior episode, we talked about how Corticotropin-releasing hormone also affects the gut. Yeah. Right? It's really interesting. It can cause leaky gut or intestinal permeability, I guess is what we're saying. Yeah, and it, <laughs> and it <laughs> seems that elevations in, in CRH lead to mast cell destabilization in the GI tract, and that's, the, that's essentially the mechanism there. And then mast cell activation in the GI tract increases the permeability, which leads to, quote-unquote, leaky gut. So now we've established... What's the stress response? Why is it bad? And we also established that in this time that we find ourselves in, and all the time, 
chronic stress can do a lot of really bad things to our body, yeah. right? Yeah. So and I think particularly relevant is the fact of, of how it does suppress the immune system. Oh, but, um, yeah. you know, everything else is, is part of that, too, as far as overall health optimization is you want to make sure, you know, during this time, if you're trying to maximize your exercise, mm. if you, you know, mm-hmm. you're not going to get you're not going to get the same outcomes if you have higher levels of cortisol. And that means rest. Right? right. That means that rest has to be part of your particular exercise regimen, too, because exercise itself leads to cortisol stimulation. Yeah. Bridget talked about this. Yeah, absolutely. On her, on her episode. Yeah. And so that, now we understand why it's important to measure this. And thankfully, this is a fairly easy measurement. It's, a, it's an excellent test here at Genova. And we measure it in saliva in something called the adrenocortex stress profile. Ooh, the ASP. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, it's a big one. And it's a salivary test. And why do we measure it in saliva, Michael? Well, saliva provides the benefit of having of testing free hormone. And what that means is a hormone that is unbound because a lot of times hormones circulate in the serum and they're attached to binding proteins. They're mm-hmm. attached to albumin, which helps it to circulate. When you're measuring it in the saliva, you're looking at free unbound hormone. And that's the proportion of the hormone that is biologically active. Ready to go. Right. Bioavailable. So that tells you if you're looking at free hormone compared to a healthy cohort, and a refer- that's how you set the reference range, mm-hmm. higher levels of free hormone means that that's free hormone that is going around and creating biological action. The ones that we just mentioned, like reduction in bone formation, like immune suppression and and all those other things that we discussed. But the problem is that we know normally, in a normal human being, there's something called a diurnal and circadian rhythm where we know that there is a specific pattern of cortisol release that happens physiologically and normally. Right. Because we discussed cortisol is a normal hormone that has physiologic action and is you know has a purpose. Mm-hmm. And one of the biggest reasons that cortisol elevations occur is to wake us up. That is where we get our largest surge of cortisol is in the morning when we're when we're waking up. Mm-hmm. And so that is part of the diurnal rhythm and then it slowly comes down throughout the rest of the day. And that's what we're measuring on this four-point salivary cortisol is we're measuring cortisol throughout four different times to see is it following a normal pattern, a yeah. normal circadian rhythm. We want to see that it falls in that normal pattern. It kind of looks like a hockey stick when you look at the ASP yeah. test, right? It does. And so it's supposed to be highest in the morning, lowest in the evening. To help you get ready for bed, essentially. Right. You want, you want right. to make sure that cortisol is nice and low in the evening. And that's why all these sleep hygiene techniques are really important. We can get into some of those a little bit later. Yeah. But before we get dive into the interpretation, let's frame it based on the generalized adaptation syndrome, the work of Dr. Selye. You want to talk to that a little bit, Michael? Sure. So Hans Selye created what he calls the general adaptation syndrome, and this is related to HPA axis dysfunction. And he described three different stages of dysfunction. The first stage is what he called the alarm stage, where there's a lot more sympathetic activity and a lot more cortisol production. And what you're going to see overall on a test result is likely to be higher levels of cortisol throughout the day. Mm maybe at every point. Mm -hmm. Um, Stage two is what he refers to as the resistance stage, which essentially is after that initial high output of cortisol, the body starts to become a little bit resistant. And so now you're going to see maybe even what looks like more normal 
looking cortisol levels. It's where everything starts to kind of flatten out a little bit. And you might have a couple blips, a couple highs here and there on the test result, but overall it's starting to look a little bit more flat. And that's because you're starting to develop resistance. And then the last stage is what he refers to as the exhaustion stage. And this is where essentially you would expect to have lower levels of cortisol on the test. And often what we tend to see is that there's a blunted diurnal rhythm so that the cortisol curve looks pretty flat throughout the day. Do you think that's where that term adrenal fatigue came from because he uses the word exhaustion in his work? Probably. That's a good thought. I don't you know, know for sure. <laughs> it just occurred to me. And I think, well, we know that it's not adrenal fatigue, as you pointed out earlier, and it's really just this you know, downregulation of the signaling. And that being said, so now as we move into interpreting, say, for example, the ASP, the mm -hmm. four-point cortisol, right. how, how important is Cellier's work in that? Yeah, I mean, I think it's a good question. I think it serves as a good model, but it's also important to know that not everyone fits into one of these three particular stages, right? This is, this is personalized right, medicine. This right. is a personalized approach, and everyone shows up a little bit different. So you've, you've got to understand that as a system. I also think that system was a good way for Cellier to track a particular individual over time and see how's, how they tend to progress from one stage into the next. But when we're, as clinicians, running an ASP on an individual, they don't always fit into one of these three particular boxes. And that's why it's important to look at each and every data point right. and ask the question of what might be contributing to this person's either elevation or decrease in cortisol and, and what can we do to help normalize the cortisol curve. And so with that, you, you step back, you try to put that personalized spin on it. And so when we look at the ASP and we're looking to see if they fall within the reference range of that quote unquote hockey stick looking picture mm -hmm. on the ASP, if there's an elevation, for example, in one particular point, it's, import it's important to go back to that person's day. What's happening at that time of day? What's going on? Are they driving home stuck in traffic? Do they have to pick up their kids? Yeah. Are they skipping meals and therefore your blood sugar is surging to try to regulate your blood sugar? Yeah, that's a that's a big one because mm -hmm. especially that three to five window, right. there's a lot of us who have major blood sugar dips in the three to five window because we're going so long between lunch and dinner. Mm -hmm. um, and if we have instability and you know some form of dyslipidemia, or uh, I'm sorry, dysglycemia, then you might have elevations in cortisol around the three to five time period because it's trying to stabilize our blood sugar. That's really common. Yeah, and it's really, it's helpful diagnostically too if a clinician's looking at this to ask questions they may not have thought to ask, right? right? To kind of address underlying HP axis dysfunction. So there are points in the ASP. What do you which, mean when you say that? What do you mean? Well, <laughs> I'm just thinking. <laughs> what do you mean? What do you mean? <laughs> right. I, I, what I hear in that is that we get a lot of patients and, we, and clinicians, I guess we speak to, where there's no reporting of stress. Right. Where they're saying, no, this person, they're you know, they chill. seem pretty even you know, keel. They get stressed out. You know, they're retired. Mm. They don't have a lot going on in their life. <laughs> you know, we, something of that. And and it's like, like, that doesn't mean that somebody doesn't have stress a cortisol going on. Right. So it, it comes back to how we described stress earlier on. And you're exactly right. And we're like, yeah, they're pretty chill. Yeah, but they don't. They skip meals. They have, you know, chronic diabetic neuropathy. Right. I mean, there's a lot going on. I mean, on I'm there. a perfect example of that. There's how many times <laughs> has someone come up and said, man, you are just so... Never. You're, say, you're so chill. Is that what you're going to say? Yeah. Never. Oh, I, I get that a lot. Oh, you actually. do? There's a lot of people who come up where you're like, you're so calm. You're so chill all the time. You just know me. Oh, that's exactly it. You yeah, just know I, me yeah, better. That's true. That's true. Right. Because you understand we sit in this room and you understand <laughs> that that's just mayhem underneath. But, it's a good facade. Yeah. <laughs> 
<laughs> but if I were to go into a particular clinician's office, you know, they I think they would describe me point. as being very calm, so they, even keel. Yeah, but my cortisol, oh my you've seen my cortisol <laughs> test. They'd be calling us in Metafairs with Michael Chapman's ASP and saying, this makes no sense. The guy's pretty chill. Yes. We're really... Not so much. True story. Mm-hmm. And that's just a, yeah. you know, a little narcissistic tale <laughs> on why it's important to look at every particular data point and right. not just make assumptions and why this test can be so helpful because it can show you that somebody, even, even if you weren't expecting it, it can show oh, yeah. you that they have dysfunctional HPA axis. That's right. So also as part of the ASP, we measure something called DHEA, which yes. is a whole different hormone, but it's also secreted in the adrenal gland and the adrenal cortex. Yes. And I tend to think of DHEA as the anti-cortisol. And there's a few reasons why, but just to explain DHEA, it's an androgen. DHEA is a precursor to testosterone, which, and it's also essentially a precursor, therefore, to our estrogens as well. DHEA is a little bit downstream from cortisol in the particular pathway. So cortisol can turn into DHEA in our androgens, and then DHEA turns into testosterone in our estrogens. A little bit of an oversimplification, but that works, That's right? That's a whole story genetic pathway, right? In Boom. Sta- so, statement. And you know, DHEA, some people call it the youth hormone. Right? They do? They do, because it's an antioxidant, and it's anti-inflammatory, and it's highest when we're in our 20s, and yeah. production starts to fall as you get older. So Shame. some Which, you know, can, can correlate with the onset of various diseases. So what are some physiological things that DHEA does? Well, DHEA, like I said, I call it the anti-cortisol because Mm -hmm. it has a lot of the opposite effects that cortisol does. It's anabolic Mm -hmm. in nature. And so it tends to help stimulate bone formation. It helps with skeletal muscle. It helps with insulin sensitization and management of our glycemic control. It also helps with general recovery. It helps with oxidative stress. It's an antioxidant. So a lot of different things that it can do, but in general is involved in growth and repair. Right. And so that's why when you think about what's the ratio of DHEA to cortisol, it's exactly what you just said, Michael. It's the catabolic versus anabolic. Yeah, it tells you, is there a shift in the body's motivation, essentially? Is it more <laughs> interested in breaking things down to maintain and, and deal with stress? Is it catabolic, which would be cortisol? Or is it more about growth right. and recovery? And that would be more towards the production of DHEA. And, and the body essentially can favor one versus the other. And there's there's inverse feedback. There's inverse r- relationship between the two. So some people, if you're more stressed, then you're going to produce more cortisol, which reduces your production of DHEA and vice versa. Okay, so we talked about the four-point salivary cortisol on the adrenal cortex stress profile, and we talked about the evaluation for DHEA. Let's talk a little bit about the additional uh, evaluation that we have on this particular test, which is the cortisol awakening response, or CAR. So, you know, uh, let's talk a little bit, I don't know if you want to explain a little bit about how CAR is different and and what that means clinically. It's been, they've been measuring quote-unquote car for a good 20 years. It's been in the literature way, way back. And so what they found is that in addition to that diurnal pattern of cortisol, there's also this small burst of cortisol that happens just by opening your eyes in the morning. Interesting. Yeah. And so we talked about earlier how the normal diurnal pattern has to do with the hypothalamus signaling to the pituitary. This is a completely different mechanism, actually. It's like opening your eyes and, and light hits your retina and then activates this 
part in your brain called the suprachiasmic nucleus. Yeah. Is it still re- caused by adrenal? Is it related yeah. to adrenal release? It, it is because that, that suprachiasmic nucleus sends a signal straight to the adrenals without going through the normal HPA axis. So it's a different mechanism mm-hmm. and it's a little burst of cortisol and they know that it rises, falls within a good 30 to 60 minutes. So it's a very small burst. And so they measure this to kind of get a feeling for what's the resiliency, what's your ability to prime the pump for your stressors of the day, the anticipated stressors of your day. Right. And what we're expecting is to see in between when you wake up in 30 minutes, you're, we're expecting to see a rise, mm-hmm. a pretty dramatic rise of cortisol just in that little small window, wanting to see greater than 50% rise of yeah. cortisol in that particular time frame. So that's what we're looking, that's what the research is looking for as well, but that's what we're looking for on that part of the test. Right. So we're looking at the car, we're looking at the ASP, we're looking at DHEA, right? Mm-hmm. So you find all these abnormalities and you say, wow, this patient has some significant HP axis dysfunction. What do we do about it? That's a good question. Mm-hmm. I think we should spend some time on uh, what you can do about managing this excess cortisol and, and how to manage your stress. Yeah, and I think first and foremost, the most obvious place to start is with dealing with those particular stressors. Like relaxation, mind mindfulness, right? Looking, are you skipping meals? Is that why your blood sugar is dysregulated? So those are the most obvious things to address first. Right, right. You know, it's interesting because there's a lot of things that we can do from a, a supplement standpoint, botanical standpoint. You can give a lot of different type of therapies, but what all at the end of the day, those things are only going to do so much mm-hmm. if somebody isn't also doing some of the lifestyle aspects to address the stress in their lives. And that kind of gets us back to what we were talking about before. But I do think that first and foremost, the system and the body needs to, as much as it's in sympathetic for that, for a good portion of the day, it needs to spend time in parasympathetic, which just briefly, sympathetic is our fight or flight response and parasympathetic is our rest and recoup response. And so we have to figure out a way to, to move a little bit more towards or at least incorporate more parasympathetic activity in our lives. And, and that's where the mindfulness-based techniques like meditation, like breathwork training, like tai chi or yoga or, or even just relaxing in, the, in your yard, right? It's things that put you back in touch with the relaxation response rather than the stress response. You have to get more of that on board. And, you know, it, that's kind of harder for a lot of people to even face, right? Which is why people say, just give me a pill, just give me a supplement. It's even the same as it relates to adaptogens and to herbals and botanicals because to have to stop and actually address your stressors and and kind of really reconnect is difficult for people. So it's easier for them to be asking for supplements. Yeah, I think, especially at first, Mm -hmm. you know, it's a a matter of figuring out what those particular techniques are that are going to work for you. I think the good news is that in today's age, you know, we're getting more and more of those type of therapies mm-hmm. being acceptable, right? Right. You mm-hmm. think about things like the the Aura Ring or the Whoop Band that 
tell you about your heart rate variability. And that's in a way helping you practice this sort of this balance in your nervous system and this ability to rebalance your nervous system. So it's becoming more and more acceptable and it's becoming more and more accessible to a lot of people. Right. So you have a cell phone and there's all kinds of apps like breathe and calm and all of those things that Although we're carrying around technology, they are more accessible and, and more accepted, to your point. Yeah. And the whole purpose of, of that conversation, and again, we could probably talk about that, the therapeutic and the mindfulness side of, of therapeutics for an entire podcast and episode. We will. And we should. We, and we will. <laughs> but that's just, it's important to understand that when we're looking at an adrenal cortex stress profile and we're looking at somebody's salivary cortisol, mm -hmm. to your point, we have to get back and, and understand what the triggers, what the causes are first and foremost of the stress and, you know, when they're occurring throughout the day and, and how much we can mitigate that. And, you know, that, of course, that's the most obvious answer. But there are times where you do need herbal help. You do need supplemental help. And a lot of the botanicals that are used for adrenal and HPA, HPA axis dysfunction are things like adaptogens, which is a very naturopathic place to go. <laughs> Luckily, I happen to be sitting across from a naturopath. And so I think this is kind of in your bailiwick, ah, your wheelhouse. Yeah, good use of that term. <laughs> so so when I think of an adaptogen, I essentially think of an herb that's used in balancing. And that's how I think about it from a naturopathic perspective. It tends to help rebalance your sympathetic and parasympathetic nervous system. Just it turns out that there's a lot of research to indicate that it, it does that by affecting various hormones that we were just talking about, like CRH and cortisol mm -hmm. and, mm -hmm. and mitigating those levels. But it's one of those things, like anything from a naturopathic perspective, when it comes to botanical medicine, we had the understanding of the what the herb was generally used for before we had the underlying mechanism of right. action as it relates to cellular biochemistry. Can I say uh, something funny here? Sure. Because I asked you that. Do you remember when I first started here at Genova? Yeah. I had done night shift for so many years and I remember studying the ASP and really getting into this thinking, oh my gosh, I'm in big trouble. My adrenals are a mess. And I, and I was talking to you and you were talking about adaptogens. And I actually remember saying to you, well, how does it work? Or like, how exactly does it work? Because I come from that traditional mindset where I was like, well, tell me the mechanism of action. What yeah. is it? Why right. do you think I need it? And you said, I challenged that who wouldn't need it. And then we started getting to the mechanism of action. And it's just a whole different mindset yeah. because most doctors are like, what's the mechanism? And yeah. Chinese medicine and naturopaths have this whole different way of looking at things. Well, and, and that's, like I said, we've been using these particular herbs to address these types of imbalances for a long period of time and understanding that it, that there are symptoms associated with chronic stress all the while, not probably 50 or a hundred years ago, recognizing that cortisol and CRH and the HPA axis was essentially the stimulating cause of it, mm -hmm. but still understanding that these herbs had therapeutic benefit in addressing it. Mm -hmm. So I think that's a lot of where that conversation was right. coming from. Yeah. And at the end of the day, we use these adaptogens to help treat HPA axis dysfunction. And there's a few main ones that I think about. The The one you hear a lot about is ashwagandha, mm -hmm. which is an Ayurvedic herb originally, which means it's a, a traditional Indian medicine and is used a lot in HPA axis dysfunction. Mm -hmm. It's included in a lot of different botanical formulas. There's some other herbs that I think about very commonly. Rhodiola is another one, as well as holy basil is another very commonly used botanical 
for treating HPA axis dysfunction. So there's there's others out there, and a lot of times you'll find a botanical formula. One of the things that I've always done in clinical practice is I'll tailor a particular botanical formula to the patient depending on what they need, and that's a little bit more of a personalized approach when you're creating botanical medicines. So in addition to lifestyle modification and, and, botanical, and medicine. botanical medicine, there's also a nutritional component to supporting the HPA axis? Yeah, there's a lot of things that you can do from a nutrient and even a nutritional supplementation standpoint that you can do to help HPA axis dysfunction. You know, there's really there's a really interesting supplement called Serifos, what? Uh, which has been shown to help with resensitization of the HPA axis. And so that's something that's commonly used, especially in more significant cases of uh, HPA axis dysfunction. And I think more particularly are patients who are wired and tired mm. and are still having difficulty sleeping. What does that um, stand for? What's that? Serifos. Phosphoserine. Oh, phosphatidylserine. Not the same. Not no? the same as phosphatidylserine. Oh. I think that a lot of people make that mistake, but it's Serifos. actually phosphoserine. Interesting. And that will actually help to lower overnight spikes of cortisol as well. And so that's uh, one method that clinicians will deliver at night to help readapt the HPA axis. We also think about things like fish oil to help mm -hmm. reduce inflammation, which will help to lower cortisol production. We think about B vitamins and making sure there's adequate B vitamin status. And I also think about making sure that there's adequate amino acids, particularly some more of our calmative amino acids, like glycine, yes, because glycine can essentially act on the NMDA receptor, which is sort of the opposite effect of glutamic acid, which is excitatory. Glycine tends to be more inhibitory and calming. So those are, those are important nutritional elements that I like to have in my back pocket. Well, all this is great, Michael, but you know what time it is? What? Uh Oh. oh, it's time for question of the day. Excellent. Have you it's missed been, it? Yeah, it's been so long. I, I kind of forgot how to hit the... Oh, well, we don't uh, need the jingle then. We'll oh, just no, no, go wait. No, I found it. Oh. Great. What time is it? Oh, you know what time it is. Question, question of the day. Question of the day. Question of the day. Question of the day. Wait, what time is it? Oh, I think you know what time it is. Question of the day. Question of the day. Question of the day. Question of the day. Aw, you missed it, didn't you? I did. <laughs> yeah, if I'm well, honest, I really did. Aw, well, there it was. Well, that brings us to the actual question of the day, which is another very, very common thing we are asked in medical affairs. And, mm -hmm. you know, the question we get is, I want to do the ASP yeah. because I think I need some help. And as a former night shifter, this is very meaningful to me because there are a lot of shift workers out there, right? I think I know where you're going with yeah. this question. Yeah. So it's like, okay, well, I see that pretty hockey stick. I see these times, but that's those aren't my times. Yeah. What, what if you're a shift worker and or a night shifter and you need to evaluate your HPA axis? How do you use the ASP in that case? So it's a great question. Thank you. And it's a little bit of a tricky situation mm -hmm. because... There are reference ranges on this particular test, right? And, mm -hmm. and the reference ranges are going to tell us whether somebody is within the normal or within, outside of one standard deviation or two standard deviations compared to a healthy population. And mm -hmm. this healthy population was questionnaire qualified and had essentially normal sleep-waking hours. And so when you're comparing that to somebody who is a shift worker, 
we can't necessarily say that their time that they wake up is equivalent to the time that these individuals woke up. So we don't have reference ranges for these individuals, essentially. So then what do, we, what do they do? That being said, you would expect that over time, the HPA axis will essentially shift and accommodate for this different, different schedule. And so a lot of times clinicians will have their patients collect at the normal time that they wake up. Mm -hmm. And then four hours after that, four hours after that, they'll essentially shift their collection to match what the collection would look like for somebody who's not a shift worker, a, a normal time frame. So the numbers won't match, but the pattern should? The pattern should match. However, that's part of the reason for doing the test too, because we want to see if in fact their diurnal cortisol rhythm has shifted or if it's a little wonky compared mm -hmm. to a normal individual, a healthy individual. Great. Thank you. You're welcome. You know, Patty, I don't think we uh, got to hear very much from Oliver this episode. Oh. So um, we do have to do a disclaimer. Let's go ahead and have Oliver do our disclaimer here. Which, which accent are we going to have him use? Manchester. Good. The contents at Lab Reports are meant for educational purposes only and not to be misconstrued as medical diagnosis or treatment advice. <laughs> Thanks, Thanks, Oliver. Next time on The Lab Report, we're going to be a little bit less stressed during our episode. Oh, good. I'm happy about that. I'm going to take my adaptogens. You've been listening to The Lab Report. If you like what you hear, please subscribe to our podcast, rate us, and leave us a review. To learn more about Genova Diagnostics, visit our website at gdx.net. There you'll find information on specific testing, educational resources, and how to connect with our show. Call us at 1-800-522-4762 or email us at podcast at gdx.net. No, yeah, it reminds me of that book. What? Why don't antelopes get cancer or something like that? What? That's yeah. not a book. Yeah, it's essentially saying like, you know, <laughs> they they have their stress. They get chased by the tiger or uh -huh. whatever their stress is. And then the stress is over and they're done. They don't essentially dwell on it. They don't have chronic levels of high stress. And that's well, essentially the, the synopsis of the book coming from someone who hasn't read it. Well, are you sure that antelopes don't get cancer? No, I'm not sure. I'm not even sure that's the title of the well, book. Well, why are you even telling me about a book if you're not sure of the title, nor have you read it? Well, I, it just came to my mind. I mean, wow. we can look it up. Well, let's look it up. No, no here it is. It's, um, why don't zebras get ulcers? <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>